0: Okay, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Exodus chapter 3. If you were with us last week, you will remember that we left off at the end of chapter 2 with the people of Israel living in oppression and slavery in Egypt. And in verse 23, they cry out to God for help and God hears them. God sees their afflictions. He remembers the covenant that he has with his people and he has a mighty plan to rescue his people. And this morning in chapter three, we we see this plan continue to unfold in dramatic fashion as God speaks for the first time in this book. And he makes himself known to Moses in power and in glory and in mercy. And I'm excited to begin this chapter together this morning. Now unfortunately, I'm not as well read as Joel is, I don't have any Dr. Seuss books in my library, so I don't have any such wisdom to dispense this morning. You're going to have to just hear my thoughts this morning, but we'll just trust the Lord with that over the next 35 minutes. But if you have your Bibles, get Exodus 3, the words will be on the screen above me as well, and we will read the first 12 verses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good land an a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that you have sent you. When I have brought the people of, out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. When we think of God, I imagine that each of us have different things that come to mind, right? Maybe you think of God as a, as a powerful but, but rather distant force in the universe. Maybe here this morning and you think of God as mostly an angry God ready to punish us for every wrongdoing. And maybe you think of God as a, as a kind old man with a gray beard who looks down from us from the clouds in heaven, right? Our, our culture has lots of different views on, on God and what he's like. Yesterday I, I did a Google image search and typed in God and hit, hit send and a, one of the first images that came up was a picture of Elon Musk, which I'm not quite sure how to interpret that. But we, we apparently have lots of different views on who God is and what God is like. And maybe your own circumstances have shaped your own view of God. Maybe you have a harsh view of God because of the difficult things that you have gone through in life. Maybe you have a trivial view of God because of how God is represented in, on TV and, and movies and in entertainment. There are many different ways that we think about God, but, but as we will see in chapter three, The way that we think about God is of great importance. A.W. Tozer says this. He says, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most impressive fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. In Exodus 3, is one of the great chapters in the Bible, and it is so because of what it reveals to us about our great God. Originally, I was gonna preach all the way through verses 15, but, but Joel and I were talking about this passage this week, and it seems good to slow down and to leave that last section for next week so that, so that we can take our time as we consider all that this chapter says about our God. And so we're verses one through 12 this morning, and the the main idea of my message this morning is this. God is a holy God who draws near to his people. God is a holy God who draws near to his people. We have two simple points for us this morning. One, the holiness of God, and two, the nearness of God. And First, the holiness of God. We begin in verse one, which says, Now Moses was keeping the flock with his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, this is an interesting moment in the life of Moses. Think of all that Moses has gone through so far. He has he has been saved, right, miraculously as an infant. Remember, he had been placed in that basket in the Nile. He had been discovered by the daughter of Pharaoh, the same Pharaoh that had ordered that he be executed. Right? And he had now been raised in this royal family. And then he, he made this failed attempt at, at, at becoming an activist for his people. Right? Now he's forced to flee for his life after killing this Egyptian. And, and now he finds himself in the wilderness tending sheep. And now if you're, if you're following the drama of this story, it would appear that, that Moses is, is stuck, right? I'm, I'm sure this is not how he had envisioned his life at 80, feeling forgotten, sojourner in the wilderness, far removed, as it seems, from the purposes of God. But as it is so often is with God's plan, it is often not our timing. and It's often unexpected. And in Moses' case, He is about to have an encounter unlike any that he has had before. In verse two it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. In these verses, we are confronted with something that will be um, pervasive throughout the entire Bible. And that is the theme of the holiness of God. This is the first time in the Bible the holiness of God is mentioned, but it will certainly not be the last time. Verse 3 says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, and we'll talk more about this fire in a moment, but but we're going to come to see the one who is in the fire is not just a messenger of God, but is in fact God himself. This is a a theophany. This is a, a visible encounter with God. And Moses, who's not quite sure yet what is happening, but is intrigued by this fire in the desert, begins to approach, but as he does so, God speaks to Moses and he says, do not come near, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. R.C. Sproul wrote a a commentary on this verse and he he shared a story as an illustration. He says a family once went on vacation and. And one of the things they wanted to do was visit the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis. And Before they entered it, the teenage daughter who was with them was, was being silly, making jokes and remarks about what they were doing. Then they went through the front door. And as soon as they got into the sanctuary, that girl became completely silent. Her parents were watching and they noticed the transformation that came over her countenance as she looked up at the vaulted ceilings and the Gothic arches And as she saw the mosaic tiles depicting the history of redemption, she walked tentatively. Seeing something across the room, she asked, Is it okay for me to walk through this building? She was overwhelmed by a sense of the presence of the holiness of God. And perhaps we have visited places like this before. Maybe a a great cathedral designed to instill a sense of of wonder and awe, right? By its vast open space and its vaulted ceilings and its stained glass windows. Or perhaps you've you've been to a a great museum and stood before a a great work of art which has left you breathless. Or maybe you've been to a a great wedding, right? And and seen the the sacredness and the beauty and the purity of what is happening and, and how Unappropriate it would be to, to walk up on the stage during that moment, right? Or maybe you stood beside the edge of the Grand Canyon with all its vastness and beauty and also danger, right? And of course, these are, these are all imperfect illustrations when, when we are comparing them to the glory and the holiness and the sacredness of God. But perhaps they give us a, a small glimpse of what Moses was experiencing in this moment. There are moments. And there are places where we must remain at a distance. We must just take in what is happening. Because to move toward that would be to ruin it or to perhaps even bring ruin upon ourselves. And this is that moment and that place for Moses. He is on holy ground. And of course this ground is holy because God is there. Moses is in the presence of holiness himself. When the Bible speaks of the holiness of God, it it speaks about his absolute glory and purity. And what is this is what is seen as God reveals himself to Moses in this burning bush. The flames and fire are often used throughout the Old Testament to speak about God, right? And, And while there has been much that has been written about the, the full meaning behind this mode of God's revelation, two things stand out in particular in this moment. First, we see that God is all-powerful and self-sufficient. Know what the, the text says about the fire. In verse two, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. See, the. The thing about fire is that it usually requires fuel in order to keep burning, right? A fire will only burn as long as there is wood and branches to keep it going, right? But once that is consumed, the fire is extinguished. That's not the case with the fire that Moses saw. This fire burned and it did not go out. It could not be extinguished. It, It existed independently of anything else requiring nothing of anyone or anything other than itself to burn. And so this is with our God. We will speak more about this next week when God reveals his name to Moses, I am that I am, but here we see a tangible demonstration of God's self-sufficiency. The theological word we use to refer to this is aseity. Aseity refers to the vast difference between God and his creation and his self-sustaining qualities. While he created the world to be utterly dependent upon him for all of life and health and purpose, God is not dependent upon us or upon this world or upon anything else. He exists and he does not need us. He existed long before we were and if we did not exist, he would be no different, he would be unchanged, he would be without need. Acts 17 says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything, and as this fire in the desert burned without fuel, so does God exist without need. He is separate from us, he is independent from us, he is holy, but the holiness of God goes beyond just self-sufficiency. The holiness of God refers also to the absolute moral distinction between God and everything else. That God is holy means that he is perfect in his beauty and his goodness and his purity and also he is the standard by which our purity is measured and as a standard that we fall drastically short of. And we might not like to think about that, but for Moses, when he encountered the holiness of God in the desert, there was no doubt. He was convinced, as it says in Romans, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no not one. Which is why in the Bible, when God reveals himself in his holiness and his glory, the human response is to shrink away. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden when they're confronted with their sin and their nakedness. They hid from God. Think of Isaiah, who was given this great vision of God in chapter six, where he he sees the hosts of heaven crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the Bible, when God reveals himself, and his holiness is seen by the unholy, it is always both a, a wonderful and yet also terrifying experience. Because when someone encounters the glory and the majesty of God, it is an awesome thing, but it is also something that threatens to undo us. When Moses was confronted with the pure and purifying fire before him, says Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Richard Lentz says, God's absolute moral purity often carries the connotation of danger. It was a great fear within Israel to get too close to God lest they be overwhelmed by his holiness. God's presence was a great comfort to Israel while at the same time being a great threat to their own unholy lives. Later in the book of, of Exodus, Moses will ask to see God again and God replies, you cannot see my face The man shall not see me and live. And so God passes over Moses, allowing Moses to see only his shadow. And even that was almost too much for Moses. And you remember, Moses comes down from the mountain shining with the glory of God himself and must cover his face because others are afraid to even look at him. And this all highlights a a problem with the human condition because we are made to gaze upon and enjoy the glory of God. But because of sin, we have now been made unholy. We have been cast out of the garden, and now it is unsafe for us in our unholiness to come before the presence of a holy God. Though we often like to pretend that it is not, right? We we tend to underestimate the chasm that is between us as God's creation, and God, the creator himself. We, we try to minimize the significance in, in many ways. We, we often try to exaggerate our own holiness. We, we make false claims that humans are basically good we, we ignore the fallen condition of this world and the, the evil that is in it that we ourselves have caused and we, and we pick and choose certain virtues that we find easy to abide by and we assume that these things will make us acceptable to God and will protect us from his holiness. Or perhaps we seek to deal with the reality of our unholiness by, by minimizing God's holiness. We pretend that his standards are are less than they really are. That he's not that different than us. That he does not care that much about our sin. That humanity's long histories of wars and violence is not an offensive thing to God. That the Holocaust and the abuse of power and racism and sexual immorality and pride and your anger against your spouse does not matter to God that somehow we will get away with these things, that it would be unreasonable for God to pour down his wrath on the wrong that we do. We, We like to imagine a God of our own choosing who is content with our unholiness. Because a God like that is safe, right? But a God like that is not holy. And he would not be just, and he would not be good. He would be weak, he would be like us, He'd be a God who'd be unworthy of worshiping and a God unworthy of following. But that is not our God. Our God is holy. He is perfect in moral purity. He is righteous in all of his ways, full of beauty that is unbearable to stand before. Deuteronomy says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. And yet, Here stands Moses in the presence of God's holiness. And one of the great questions in Exodus 3 is not why is the bush not consumed by the fire, but why is Moses not consumed by the holiness of God? As we continue in this passage, we begin to see the answer to that question. We come to see that God is not just a holy God, but he is a gracious God who has mercy on the helpless and the unholy. He has compassion on Moses. He has a plan to rescue his people and to make a way for them to come near. Which brings us to point number two, the nearness of God. In verse nine, God says to Moses, "'Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Now last week, Joel spoke to us from chapter two about how God who is holy and is mighty is also a God who remembers. He remembers his people. He hears their cries. And and, and while there is this chasm between the glory of God and his people, he yet moves to draw near to us. This is why he brought Moses out to the wilderness. He has not forgotten his people. He has not forgotten Moses. And now the time has come to begin the rescue. And as God draws near to Moses, he also calls Moses. Verse 10. says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. But God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Something that I have on my bucket list is to go skydiving at some point in my life. Now skydiving... Uh, is more popular than you might think it would be with about three million people going skydiving every year. And it's actually much safer than you might imagine. The reason for this is that when you go skydiving for the first time, they don't just hand you a parachute and send you up in a plane and say, just jump out whenever the moment feels right. Now, if that's what they did, you would have millions of people just plummeting out of the sky to their death every year, right? And even if you weren't skydiving, you'd have to be cautious when you went outside looking up just to make sure that the next person's not crashing down to the earth, right? That would be a, a terrifying sport, right? But that's not what they do. When you go skydiving for the first time, they send somebody strapped to your back. And they tell you when to jump. They pull the cord for you. They guide you down to the earth so that you don't crash into some random neighborhood, right? When, when you go skydiving, somebody goes with you. Now, when Moses was told by God to return to Egypt, I imagine that he felt similar to being asked to go up onto a plane with a parachute and to just jump out, Right? He must have felt like standing at the edge of the plane 10,000 feet up in the air and God is trying to just push him out of the plane, right? Because think again about who Moses is and the situation that he finds himself in. Chapter one, he's an orphan placed in a basket floating helplessly adrift in the Nile River. Chapter two, he, he rises up to save a fellow Hebrew, murders an Egyptian, and perhaps now he thought, okay, now we can rise up as a people and and face Egypt, free ourselves from the oppression of the Egyptians, but nobody follows Moses. Instead, he flees for his life. His, His life was a failure. Chapter three, he's in the wilderness, the desert, far removed from any evidence of God's purpose and work in his life. And now God is calling him to go back to Egypt where he was once a wanted man, where he's known as a murderer, where he has already failed once to be the leader that Israel needed. And so when Moses says, who am I to do such a thing, that probably sounds like a fair question to us, right? And, and isn't that a question that we also often ask of ourselves? Aren't we often eager to follow God until that call actually comes and and we we realize the significance of what God is calling us to do? Don't we often have ambition to, to follow Christ until that moment comes when we actually must take that step of faith, take that step of obedience and then don't we say, wait a minute, I don't know if I can do that. Just this past week I was, I was talking to a friend just about this passage and the obedience of God and, and we talked about how when, when it comes to obeying God, we often say we are willing to do hard things for God but what we really mean is we are willing to do hard things for God if it is on our own terms, if it's according to our own timeline and often in a way which, which doesn't really require that much sacrifice which is not normally how the calling of God works, right? Instead, the call of God comes often when we aren't ready for it. And we look at ourselves, and we consider the call of God on our lives, whatever that may be, and we think, I don't think so, God. Because we know ourselves. Just like Moses knew himself, the call of obedience to God can often be an overwhelming thing. And I don't know what that that call might be for you this morning. Perhaps it's the the call to, to love that person in your life when you know that it will come at a great cost to you. Perhaps that call is a calling to lay down the idol in your life of sexual sin. Perhaps that call is to begin living generously towards others, though things already seem financially tight, or perhaps God is calling you to proclaim the gospel to your lost friends. And in these moments, we say to ourselves, I know myself, I know my fears, I know my limitations, and I don't know if I can obey you. Well, church, that may very well be true. But when Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, notice that God does not really answer his question. Moses says, who am I? And God says, that does not matter. What matters is that I go with you. You will go, Moses. You, the orphan, the murderer, the failure, you will go and you will rescue my people, and I will go with you. He does not give Moses a pep talk. He does not seek to build up his self-confidence and say, "Say Moses, just, just look at all the gifts that you have. Like, think of all that you can do, just put your mind to it and you can accomplish anything. No, he says, I will be with you. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I'm a personal God who has a long history of presence and nearness to his people. And as I have been with my people before you, I will be with you as well. And church, this God is with us this morning also. And doesn't that free us from the the often crippling thought that we must accomplish this all on our own? Right, that the, that the outcome of our lives or our families or our ministries is ultimately up to us and our power and our wisdom. Right? We, we worry so much about the outcome of our careers or whether our parenting will produce godly children or if our efforts to obey God will just end up being fruitless. But our comfort in moments like this is the knowledge that the holy, self-sufficient God is with us and he will help us, that we can trust in him, that he is working for your good, and he will equip you for what he has called you to. There is freedom in the knowledge that we are not able on our own to do all that God calls us to do, but that God who is able is with us. And coming to this understanding that God is sovereign over our lives, does not make our effort unnecessary. It makes it all that much more important. It empowers us for it. It gives us courage to follow Christ, knowing that his power and his wisdom and his strength will go with us and enable us. It is this way that God receives the glory through our lives. That's what this book is about. That's what the book of Exodus is about. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's about God being known and enjoyed and proclaimed through our lives, that our boast may be in him alone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When God calls us, when God challenges us towards obedience, the question ought not to be, who am I to do this, but who will go with me? And the answer is, to that question has been the same for God's people throughout all of history. It is God of Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. It is God of the Bible, the Holy One Himself. He is with us. This is the only way that God accomplishes anything of real significance in our lives. Do you you want to follow Christ? Do we wanna be a church that delights in Christ? and loves one another, that proclaims the gospel, that serves our community, the only way to do this is if we place our trust in the God who is with us. Remember with me the the end of the book of Matthew where Jesus who has conquered sin and death and the grave commissions now his disciples to go out and to make the gospel known to all the nations And he says something to them that is very similar to what is said to Moses in Exodus three. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The disciples were no more impressive than Moses, right? They were no more impressive than you and me, right? But like Moses, they went, empowered by the presence of God and they made disciples of all nations. And the gospel has spread throughout the world and the gospel is still spreading and millions have come to faith in Christ and we ourselves have come to faith in Christ and Redeemer Fellowship exists to make the glory of God known. And do you know why? It is not because Moses or Peter or Paul or you are impressive. It is because all authority and on heaven and on earth belongs to God alone, and he is with us. And he was with Moses in the fire, and he sends Moses back to Egypt where he will deliver his people out of oppression. And this deliverance, this this exodus, which we're gonna be in for the next year, is the next great chapter in God's plan to bring redemption to his people, a plan that would one day culminate with the coming of Jesus where God himself would draw near in an even greater way where he himself would would step down into our world not as a consuming fire not as a blinding vision but as a man as an infant who would grow who would walk among us who would suffer with us and would ultimately lay his life down on a cross for us And because of his sacrifice, we have been brought near to God. As we finish here this morning, I want to return just one last time to the, the God in the burning bush, the God who is holy, the one from whom Moses hid his face, lest he be destroyed. That same God is with us this morning. We stand before that God this morning. One day, we will see that God face to face. But because of Jesus, as Paul says in Colossians, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Church, that is an astonishing statement. Christ has given his life for ours. And he is returning. And when he does so, we will be brought into the presence of the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who has no needs, the one who exists apart from us, the one who is holy in all of his ways the one who is a consuming fire that will bring ruin to all that is unholy. But for all who have confessed faith in Christ, we will stand before this God. And we ourselves, who have been made holy by the blood of Christ, will be brought into the fullness of his presence and will know the nearness of God and experience life and joy and peace forevermore. Our God is a holy God. And because of the grace and the mercy and the blood of Christ, he has drawn near to us. Let me pray.